Well, when we operate through life in whatever you do, whatever task you are performing, whatever you're asked to do, whenever you go someplace, whatever trials you endure, the most important thing in your life that's going to help you get you through difficult times is going to be what your motivation is. One of the worst things that you can do is to go through difficult endeavors and not have a goal, not have something to look forward to. You know, it's kind of like when I remember being in school, whether it's in high school or whether it's in college, you know that there were certain students that understood what was needed in order to graduate. You know there were certain students who already had a vision for themselves in terms of what they wanted to do. And you know that it was exactly those students who tend to do the best because they're very clear on what their goal is, whereas those who are just kind of wandering aimlessly have difficulty enduring. They have difficulty lasting to the end. They have great difficulty being able to motivate themselves to endure the difficult times and the difficult tasks and the struggles that are necessary in order to get to the end. And for us as Christians, it is no different. Whatever it is we're going through in life, on a day-to-day -day basis, we have been talking about the spiritual war and we are engaged in the spiritual war each and every single day. But that spiritual war needs to have an end. It needs to have a goal. It needs to have something that you're looking forward to. We're not just in the spiritual war for the sake of being in the spiritual war. We are in the spiritual war with a goal that's at the end. And when you think about that saying about the light at the end of the tunnel, you know, it's like being in a dark tunnel and we're looking towards the end and we see light at the end, but the saying goes that light could be daylight or it could be what? A train. And I would say that for those of us, if we are in Christ, then we know that at the end of that tunnel is truly daylight. But for those who do not have the correct hope, who do not have the hope of the Lord Jesus Christ, who have not put their hope into the Lord, whatever light they see may be an onrushing train. And so for us, it is important that in the trials that you endure and go through, that you need to have a hope that helps to sustain you through all these difficulties. It is so important to have a hope to look forward to. And so this morning, as we return to the armor of God, we're now on part eight of the armor of God. And we are taking a look at the helmet of salvation. And we're going to be looking specifically at the first half of Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17. And our purpose this morning is to learn how the helmet of salvation protects you in spiritual warfare. And in our outline, we're going to look at the helmets of salvation from two different angles so as to prepare you for that spiritual battle. But as always, I want to take us back to chapter 6, verse 10. This is the start of the spiritual war. This is the start of the armor of God. Just to reread it from verse 10, we read, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. That is a reminder to us that we are to be strengthened. Literally, it's to be strengthened by the Lord. It's to be strengthened in the Lord. So you have a responsibility to make sure that you are strengthened, but the source of that strengthening is not you, but it's the Lord Jesus Christ. So we are to be strengthened in the Lord and in the strength of His might. And then from there, we do that by putting on the full armor of God, verse 11, so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. And then continuing on to verse 12, 
we read that for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Our war is against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of darkness, and against these spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. That's the entire demonic realm. So in addition to verse 11 that talked about the evil one, talked about Satan, we have Satan and we have all the forces of darkness. And so verse 13 reminds us, therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And that evil day can be any particular day between now and the time the Lord returns, where Satan or his demons decide to wage an attack directly against you. So we are to be able to resist. We need to take up the full armor of God so you'll be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. And that idea of standing firm, it is a defensive posture. We are taking defense. We are rooting ourselves into the ground and we are standing in a defensive posture against the attacks of the evil one. And in verse 14, we see the commandment once again to stand firm, therefore. And the armor of God is defined to us in five different pieces. And we have looked at the first four pieces. The first one is to gird up your loins with truth. Truth is the foundation of everything that we do. Truth helps you to make better decisions. It helps you to understand what's going on around you. Nothing happens without your knowledge of truth. So you gird your loins with truth, but you also put on the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness reminds us that we are not righteous before God. The only way we can be righteous before God is through the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's because of His death on the cross that when you put your faith into the Lord Jesus Christ, He took away your sins and He gave you His righteousness. So this righteousness on our breastplate, it is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And then from there we looked at verse 15, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Literally, this is to say that the gospel of peace prepares your feet. The result of the gospel is peace. We have peace with God up in heaven. We have peace with our fellow man. So we have peace both vertically and we have peace horizontally. And we talked about the implications of that peace, how that peace should lead you to greater peace in everything that you endure, everything that you go through. And then last week, we looked at the shield of faith. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. And this faith is a faith that we must have in God's good purposes. This faith is a faith that God is with us. It is a faith that believes that God does not forsake us nor depart from us. That we believe that everything that we're going through, no matter how hard, is according to God's good purposes. And then finally, this morning, we come to our last two pieces. We'll look at the first of the last two, verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. And you see the verb there, take. It's this idea here that once you have done the first three things, which is to gird up your loins with truth, put on the breastplate, and having prepared your feet with the gospel of peace, that now you're also to take the shield of faith, you're to take the helmet, and you're to take the sword of the Spirit. Paul, as he's writing this, is probably handcuffed to a prisoner. Well, handcuffed as a prisoner to a Roman guard, to a Roman soldier. And he's probably looking at the very armor of the soldier in order to 
bring us this illustration of the armor of God. So we're going to take a look at the helmet of salvation from two different angles. And the first is the helmet of salvation itself. We're going to take a look at what it means that, what is a helmet? I think that's obvious to each one of us. But what did a helmet look like to the Roman soldiers? What was the purpose? How does it relate spiritually? And then we'll take a look at our second section, which is the hope of salvation. But as we take a look at the helmet of salvation, once again, we see in verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation. Now, this piece of equipment, this helmet, I think it's very easy for any of us to understand. But to think about the function of the helmet at that time, the helmet for the soldiers, it took on various shapes and sizes at various times and places. If you ever look back in history and look at pictures of old soldiers, you almost never see them wearing the exact same outfit. You'll see a lot of the same elements there, but it looks different from person to person. And so the helmet took on various shapes and sizes at various times and places. It was generally a combination of iron and bronze. So it would be made of metal. Obviously, it was iron and bronze with cloth or leather lining the inside. And obviously, the cloth or the leather is in order to make it a little bit less uncomfortable, to make it safer to wear. But the goal is obvious. It's for head protection. We know that whenever people go out into the battlefield, or even, for instance, if there's a fire and firemen are going out there, headgear is very important. In fact, I used to work for a company that did a lot of project management for construction projects. And part of their safety checks would be to make sure that people had the right headgear wherever they went. Even in sports, we know that the sport of football, when people go out and play football, they need to put on their headgear. But you notice that football, the face masks are a little bit different depending upon position, right? For instance, a quarterback needs to have his eyes clear that he has better vision. But someone who is um, playing on the line, either offensive or defensive line, they may have more to that face mask, more to those grills in order to protect more of their face. So the goal was obviously head protection. And the foot soldiers, not surprisingly, had the heaviest, most protective helmets of all. They are the ones that saw the most hand-to-hand -hand combat, so they had to have the heaviest, most protective helmets. And in fact, uh, the helmets, and you've probably seen pictures of it, but there might be um, a strip that comes down to protect the nose. It, um, the helmet may stretch over to protect the cheeks. Sometimes the helmets in the back would stretch down to the bottom of the neck to protect the neck area. So these helmets were very large. They were heavy. They were highly protective. They did inhibit your vision you know, because of all that was in front of your face. And so not surprisingly, the soldiers would only put on the helmet as the battle was to begin. So that's why Paul says to take up. You don't just keep your helmet on, but you take it up as soon as you see the battle beginning. And that is true for the soldiers. They would keep their helmets off until they knew they had to get out there. And the reasons are obvious. Those helmets, even when you think about football on a hot day when it's 100 degrees outside, Right? What do the football players do as soon as they go to the sidelines? They take off their helmets because they need greater comfort. So those helmets could be hot. They could be very uncomfortable. And so for the soldiers, they really only wanted to put it on just as the battle was beginning. But that raises the question, okay, well, we know what the helmet is for physically for the soldiers, but what about the spiritual function of that helmet? Well, the spiritual function for the helmet, when we think about the head, the head is where the mind resides. 
the head, obviously, we've got the brain. We understand that that's where what we call our cranial activity, where our cranial activity takes place. Um, it protects our mind. And for the Christian, the mind is all important because the mind is the center of all of our thinking. The mind is the center of all of our thinking. Every Sunday when you come here and sit down and I preach to you, or on Wednesdays if you come here and you're listening to Terry Norris, or if you're at Sunday school, or if your children are at Awana, the teaching is for the purpose of giving you information that you can absorb into your mind. Without the function of your mind, the teaching is useless. And so the spiritual function of the helmet, I believe uh, the Apostle Paul is thinking about the head, and that's where the mind would reside. The mind is the center of all thinking. And sanctification, and what do I mean by sanctification? I mean our daily growth each and every day to grow in our Christ-likeness. That each and every day we should be seeking to become more mature in our walk. That as we look back over the years, we should be able to see a trajectory where we're becoming more and more like our Lord Jesus Christ. And I know that there are days where it's going to be tougher. It feels like we've taken some steps back. But it's almost like if you were to look at the graph of a stock market that's on its way up. Not every day does it go up, but over time it goes up. There may be days it goes down. There may be days it dips down quite a bit. But then overall, there are days where it's going to go upwards more than it dips downwards. And in a healthy economy, it's continually going upwards. And that's really what our walk with the Lord Jesus Christ should be like. But it starts with our mind because sanctification doesn't happen unless you understand how it is you're to walk. Sanctification doesn't happen unless you understand more about God, more about Jesus Christ, more about His example. And so it's no surprise that spiritual war is engaged with the mind. I've said this numerous times before. It's worth mentioning again. Spiritual war is engaged with your mind. Your struggle is not against flesh and blood. Your struggle is against spiritual forces, and the way you engage and protect yourself is with your mind. If you lose function of your mind, if you lose control of your mind, you leave yourself wide open. And so having your mind engaged is absolutely critical. And then I mentioned the relationship with the heart because we often talk about the mind and the heart. Scripture often refers to the mind and the heart. And really the mind and the heart, they're both connected. Your heart is really kind of the center of your desires. The mind is where the center of thinking takes place. And so you can understand how thinking and desires are tightly connected to one another. And so when we think about the mind, closely connected to that will also be the heart. So whenever you read scriptural passages that talk about your mind or talk about your heart, recognize it starts up here. It starts with what you think. It starts with what you know. And the book of Ephesians, as we've been going through this book, there has been no shortage of statements or commands from Paul appealing to your mind. Paul has been repeatedly appealing to your mind. In Ephesians 1.18, we saw a prayer from Paul that we would know the hope of our calling, the inheritance of the saints, and to know God's power. And then in Ephesians 3.19, Paul prayed that you would know the love of Christ, that you would know that is engaging the mind, but that you would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So all of that involved with the mind. 
And then Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, Paul said, Do not walk like the Gentiles. And how do the Gentiles walk? He says the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. You see, prior to knowing Christ, each one of us walked in futility. And the futility was up here in our mind. When we're on cruise control, when we're just seeking after our own lusts and our own desires, we are essentially doing Satan's bidding. We are doing the will of Satan. We are following after Satan and after the course of the world. And then Ephesians 4.20, we saw that you did not learn Christ in this way. So as Paul was talking about the way Gentiles walk, he said, you did not learn Christ in this way. In other words, you did not learn Christ by walking in the futility of your mind. So for us as Christians, we learn Christ in a very specific way. We learn Christ by engaging our mind with the truth of God, the truth from the Scriptures. And then even Ephesians 4.23, Paul said to be continually renewed in the spirit of your mind. Verse 22 said to put off the old man. Verse 24 says to put on righteousness. And in between is verse 23, which says to be continually renewed in the spirit of your mind. And how do you think you are to be continually renewed? It's the Word of God. The Word of God is the source of the renewal of our minds. And then even Ephesians 5.18, Paul said, Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled by the Spirit. And this idea of being drunk with wine, what happens when you get drunk? Guess what you lose control of? Your mind. We understand that. That's why when people drink, we don't want them driving. That's why you don't want to drink before you go and take a major test, because you lose control of your mind. And so many bad things have happened in the history of mankind, and all of you, I'm sure, have examples in your mind of bad things that have happened when people have lost control of their mind. And so Ephesians very much appeals to the mind. But not only that, but even up until now, every piece of the armor of God that we have looked at, as well as the sword of the Spirit that we'll look at next time, which is the Word of God. Every piece of armor requires engagement of the mind. You want to gird up your loins with truth? Well, that starts with the mind, understanding, knowing, and trusting in truth. You want to put on the breastplate of righteousness? Well, that starts with reminding yourself whose righteousness is in you. You want to put on the shield of faith? Well, that starts with reminding yourself where your faith is and how it's supposed to affect you. And so each of the elements that we have looked at has an element of how we need to engage our mind, even the gospel of peace. You need to engage with your mind what peace is, that you have peace with God, peace with one another, and the peace that it should result in in terms of your day-to-day walk. And so there is a continual appealing of the mind. But we remember that this piece of equipment is the helmet of salvation. It's not just a helmet. It's a helmet of salvation. So the question is, what is salvation? And salvation, I think, is a very easy concept. But surprisingly, you may not realize this. We use it in different ways. Now, the Greek term is soteria. Um, That is the word for salvation in the Greek. It shares the same root with the word save. So in the Greek, to save someone is really the same root as the word salvation. And the definition as that word is used in the New Testament, it refers either to deliverance or preservation, 
deliverance or preservation. That's not how we commonly use it. But for instance, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17 talks about how Noah, it looks back to Noah and how he prepared an ark. It says he prepared the ark for the salvation of his household. And when we think about the story of Noah, even our kids know the story of Noah. That ark saved the family from what? The flood. So it was a physical salvation. It was a physical deliverance. So it's sometimes the deliverance of God from a difficult situation. And Philippians 1.19, Paul was in prison. He's up in Rome. He's expecting to see Caesar. He's not sure if he's going to live or die, but he expressed confidence in Philippians 1.19 that he would be delivered from his situation. So there is, the word can be used simply just for deliverance or preservation. But more commonly, we understand it as salvation, either physical or spiritual, but more significant for us, spiritual. And that's what we're looking at now, because that is the most significant aspect of salvation for us. That is the whole reason why we share the gospel. That is why the gospel was shared with us. It is in order for us to have salvation. And that salvation is defined in a couple of ways. One is eternal life, right? We understand that. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son and that he who believes in the son will not perish but have eternal life. So we understand that is eternal life, but it's not just eternal life because quite honestly, everyone's going to have eternal life. The question is, where are you going to have your eternal life? See, the eternal life that we're talking about is eternal life with God. It is eternal life with God, and we are spared from God's wrath. Because we understand that those who do not accept the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, those who do not recognize that His crucifixion, His death on the cross was meant to pay for your sins, those who reject that truth have nothing to look forward to but eternity of God's wrath. See, everyone's going to be raised up. Everyone's going to be resurrected. But those who are condemned are going to be resurrected with a body that's going to put them into hell. And those who are saved are going to be resurrected with a glorified body in which they will be with God for all eternity. So the spiritual salvation we're talking about is eternal life with God where we are spared from God's wrath. But you might be surprised that when we talk about salvation, there is a past, present, and future aspect of salvation. You may not have realized this, but we talk about it all the time. In that past sense, you know, a lot of times when we talk about other people, we might ask the question, especially when we get prayer requests, we might get a prayer request, please pray for um, this person, this person's going through this difficulty and whatnot. And one of the first questions I will ask is, is the person saved? Right? You want to know when you're praying for someone, you're, the first thing that should be going through your mind as a believer, is that person saved? And we say that past tense, because for each and every one of us, we are saved, past tense. That means that we were saved starting from the point of conversion. We were saved from the time of conversion, from that time that we responded to the gospel, to the good news. And so that is the past aspect, that we were saved starting from that time in our past when we responded to the gospel. But there is also a present aspect of salvation. I don't have the full verse up, but Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 13, talks about the command from Paul to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. 
to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, but also to remember that it is God who works within you. And what does that mean? It doesn't mean that we work in order to achieve salvation, but now that you have salvation, you are to work that salvation out. What does that mean? Each and every day, you want to bear fruit of salvation. You want your life to be able to show the fruits of salvation to the world around you. You want to be able to show that there is a difference that that salvation has had in your life. So that is the present, and we call that also sanctification. And I mentioned that word already this morning, sanctification, this idea that we're growing each and every day. But there is a future aspect of salvation also, because the future aspect is our eternity with God. You see, from that time that you responded to the gospel, your physical life didn't change, right? You still had the same jobs, or you were still going to the same school. You were still doing the next day what you did before in terms of your day-to-day life. Your circumstances didn't change. Your behavior should have changed. Your desires and what you sought to do with your time should change, but your circumstances in your physical life really didn't change. But we understand that salvation is not here on earth. Salvation is in the future. Salvation starts first when Jesus Christ returns, and then when the eternal state begins. We are resurrected, and then we know that we have our eternity with God, and so there is a future sense of that salvation that is referred to often in Scripture. And so then the question is, now that we understand salvation, what is the helmet of salvation? Because salvation has multiple meanings. And even if we think about spiritual salvation, it can talk about past, present, or future. So what does this helmet of salvation mean, and how does it apply to us? Is it about physical deliverance? Well, I would say possibly there are some people that believe this. And really, it's not maybe not physical deliverance, but the idea that you're being attacked You're being attacked by the enemy. You're being attacked by demons. You're being attacked by Satan. And you're going to be delivered from that attack. And I would say certainly there's truth in that, right? If you're being attacked and you put on the armor, you will have deliverance from that situation. But is that what Paul means by the helmet of salvation? I don't believe it does. Though we ought to have confidence that the victory is already won, that we should be assured of. Whatever struggle you go through, the victory has already been won. Is it about salvation, spiritual salvation? I believe the answer is yes. The helmet of salvation is about spiritual salvation. But is it about past conversion? And I would say no, because Paul is addressing people who already believed. All right, so it's not like he's saying, put on the helmet of salvation so that you'll be saved. He's talking to believers who are already saved. So he's not talking about their past conversion. That's not what this helmet of salvation is referring to. Is it present sanctification? And so the idea of present sanctification is that you're continuing to grow day by day. Is that what it means to put on the helmet of salvation? Well, possibly, but I don't believe that's the case. I believe what it is referring to is that future eternal state. It's that future eternity that we will be with God. That helmet of salvation is the helmet of salvation that is to remind you of what is the end state. It is to remind you what comes at the end of our lives. When we take a look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 8 through 11, we'll see very similar terminology, but we'll see an extra word that Paul uses here with regards to the helmet of salvation. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 8, Paul says this, 
But since we are of the day, and by the way, if you, do a, you could do a self-study of this um, this week if you're looking for some verses to study. You can go back to verse 1, and Paul talks about the return of the Lord, which is very relevant here, that the return of the Lord is going to come. But for people in darkness, it's going to be like a thief in the night. But for us, it's not going to be like a thief of the night because we are always expecting that the Lord could return at any time. But Paul says this, because we are children of light. Verse 8, but since we are of the day, that's this idea that we are children of light and not darkness. But since we are of the day, let us be sober. Sober, once again, you want to be sober for the sake of your mind. It's just like Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk with wine. Be sober. You want to have control of your mind. Be sober and having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. So here in 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul talks about that salvation and he says, the hope. The hope. Now, it's important for me to explain this again when it comes to the word hope. Whenever we see words in Scripture, we have to ask ourselves, what does it mean in Scripture? Because the word hope in Scripture is not the same as hope the way we use it today. You see, we say hope today, I hope that I am going to get extra money. I hope that I'm going to find a job. I hope that uh, my furnace will be fixed, or at least here in Brawley, it should be AC, right? I hope that my AC will be fixed very soon. I hope that I will have safe travels. When we use the word hope today, we're basically expressing uncertainty. We want a certain outcome, but it's not guaranteed that we'll get that outcome. And so we're looking forward to a certain outcome. We're hoping for, we want it to happen, but we are not absolutely certain. I hope that I will win the lottery, which by the way, I hope you're not playing the lottery. Otherwise, you're proving to me that you failed math. But I hope to win the lottery. So we understand that in a worldly sense, hope talks about uncertain outcomes. But in the scriptures, when we see hope, it is absolutely certain. It is absolutely certain. And the hope that's being referred to here is really mental. It's the hope of what is to come. It's something that you can't see, but something that you know will happen. And that's what you're holding on to. That's what's going to get you through. So here he says, the helmet, which is the hope of salvation. And that salvation is talking about the hope of a salvation that has not happened yet. Yes, you are already saved because you have responded to the gospel of salvation. You are currently growing in your salvation. But the final salvation that's going to be revealed in the future, that has not happened. That's where you have your hope. Because ultimately, everything is for that future salvation. And verse 9, Paul goes on to say, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the hope of salvation is explained in verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, that would be to go to hell. But for those who have responded to the gospel, the hope is obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's a hope that is fixed in the future. And verse 10, he goes on to say about Christ who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Future tense, we will live together with him, Christ. We will get to be with Christ face to face. That is the greatest blessing ever. And having done a memorial service recently, I mentioned this and I'll mention this again. If you could leave here, 
and be just one moment with Christ in heaven, just one moment with God the Father in heaven, I guarantee you, I don't care what connections you have in this world. I don't care how much family you've got. I don't care how many material possessions you have here. You will not want to come back. Looking forward to the eternal state should bring hope. It should be what we look forward to. And verse 11, that's why Paul says, Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you are also doing. And so that brings us to the second angle that we're going to look at with regards to the helmet of salvation. First, we looked at the helmet itself, but second, we're going to dive deeper into this hope, the hope of salvation. Because i got to tell you, folks, if you read through the New Testament, you will see it everywhere. When you know what it is, when you understand what it is, when you are looking for it, you will see it everywhere. This hope of salvation that is a hope in the future. Even Ephesians chapter 1, verses 18 through 19. Verse 18 says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know, there's that word again, to know, engaging the mind, so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. You know what Paul's prayer for you is? Paul's prayer for you is that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened, that you would be able to read the scriptures and know, first and foremost, the hope of his calling. What is the calling? The calling is the calling of you to salvation. That when he called you to salvation, there is hope associated with that. And Paul wanted you to know that hope, as well as the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. That glory of his inheritance, God's inheritance, we'll see that in heaven. And verse 19, what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. And then another verse, and I'm going to take you through some verses here. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Paul says this, For the grace of God has appeared. Grace is unmerited favor. So the unmerited favor, what we did not deserve from God, this has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. And verse 12, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Now let me stop there for a moment. Because verse 11, when Paul says that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, that is past tense. That is conversion. That is people who have responded to the gospel. But you see there in verse 12, you see the present effect of salvation, that we are to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. That is what we call sanctification. That is how we are living day by day. But going on to verse 13, not only that, but we are looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. We are looking for the blessed hope. Now this is looking future. We are looking for the blessed hope and the appearing. That is the second coming, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. And this is one of those verses that shows us that Jesus Christ is not just our Lord, but He is God. We are looking for the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. That describes us now. 
We are to be a people who are zealous for good deeds. But we have that blessed hope. How about Philippians chapter 3, verse 20? This is, from the time of my conversion, been one of my favorite memory verses. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 talks about how our citizenship is in heaven. And we have to remember that our citizenship is not first and foremost America. Our citizenship is first and foremost in heaven. What does that mean for each and every one of you who have put your faith into the Lord Jesus Christ? What it means is that you are not home. You may have a home to go to. You may have a country here where we are citizens of. But our physical citizenship here in America is greatly outweighed by the citizenship that we have awaiting us in heaven. So I think of the... Um, half-brother of Jesus, James, when he wrote that your life is nothing more than a vapor. You ever see a vapor, how quickly it appears and disappears? Our life here on this world compared to eternity is nothing more than a vapor. So why is it that we would put so much emphasis upon our citizenship here and forget the citizenship that we have for all eternity once we leave this world? Now, obviously, while we're here, we are light and salt, and certainly there's nothing wrong with loving our country. There's nothing wrong with wanting what is best for our country. Even when the Israelites were sent into exile, Jeremiah wrote to the Israelites to pray for the welfare of the country that they were sent into, which is Babylon, to desire their welfare. And by desiring their welfare, you too will have welfare. And so we too, we want what is best for our country because we are here. This is what God has called us to do. But our citizenship, we must remember, is in heaven. But look at verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So our citizenship is in heaven. And from heaven, the idea of verse 20, from heaven, we await our Savior meaning our Savior is going to come back from heaven to earth. We eagerly await the arrival of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, it's kind of like I remember being a little kid and your parents told you, well, I'm going to take you to Disneyland next week. And then for the next week, I can barely sleep, right? And then the night before, I'm up all night because I can't wait to get into that car and go to Disneyland. And all week long leading up to that trip, I am bragging to all my friends, guess what? I'm going to Disneyland, and you're not. <laughs> but, you know, we, we, have that ex we, we have that excited expectation. We've been told, and now we're looking forward to it. And you know what Paul here is describing? That even as he's writing to the Philippians, even as he is in prison, awaiting his trial before Caesar, what he is saying is that our citizenship, and by the way, he's writing to people with Roman citizenship. And at that time, there is no better status you could have had as a person than to have Roman citizenship. But Paul writes to them saying, no, our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And look at verse 21, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory the body of our humble estate, and I'm looking around, and I know a lot of you understand what this means. If you're young, you may not understand it, but you will. But as we grow older, we know that we can't do what we used to do. Things don't work the way they used to work. 
There are more visits to the doctors. There are more prescription medications we've got to take. There's more maintenance day by day that we've got to do to keep ourselves maintained. I'm high maintenance. I mean, that's, that, that's the amazing part. I mean, I, sometimes I feel like all I'm doing is maintaining myself. And so we understand as we grow older, we, we are in this body that's wearing away. And that's what Paul says, that our hope of the future when Jesus Christ returns, he's going to transform the body of our humble state into the conformity with the body of his glory. That is going to be a perfect body. That is going to be a glorious body. All your pains are gone. You're going to be even better than you were at your peak here on earth. We are going to have a glorified body. And it says, by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. So the same power that Jesus Christ has to subject everyone into his authority is the same power that he will use to give us transformed, glorious bodies. And then the last passage we'll look at, 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 3 through 13, and it's amazing. I keep coming back to 1 Peter because there are so many parallel themes in 1 Peter. And this was, um, for me personally, as a student in seminary, this was the first book that I had taught through, 1 Peter. Still one of my favorite books. And when we look at these words, we see how much they relate to the hope of salvation. Because the hope of salvation is all over this letter, but especially in this first chapter. Remember, Peter is writing to people, writing to believers during a time in which Christians were being executed. In the city of Rome, the emperor there was a man by the name of Nero. There was a big fire that broke out in Rome. And Nero, the emperor, was being accused for that fire, but he wanted a scapegoat. So he pinned it on the Christians. He said, oh, no, it's the Christians that set that fire. And then from there, Christians were being executed. They were being impaled. And so there were believers outside of Rome that were worrying about this persecution going outwards. And think for a moment, if you're in that situation, you know your life is in danger. I mean, you think about now, of course, we've had this issue with the pandemic, the coronavirus. But this is much greater than the threat of coronavirus. This is that people who believe what you believe are being executed for being Christians. What would you say to them? What would you say to others to cheer them up? How would you help them to endure those difficult trials? Well, I'll tell you exactly the way Peter did it. He did it by reminding them of their salvation. Chapter 1, verse 3, what does Peter say? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope, not a dead hope. He has caused us to be born again. We were once spiritually dead. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, you were once dead in your transgressions and sins. Spiritually, you were dead. But God made you alive again. He made you born again. And not just born again, but born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ Jesus from the dead. It reminds me of 1 Corinthians 15. Paul devotes an entire chapter, a very long chapter, to the importance of the resurrection. 
You know why the resurrection matters? Because the resurrection gives us the guarantee that we too will be resurrected. Because if we will not be resurrected, there is no hope. But we will be resurrected. And so he says that we are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And verse 4, to obtain an inheritance. That's our treasures in heaven, which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. And not only that, but who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That verse 5, when it talks about salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, that is exactly where our hope is. It's that salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. When Jesus Christ returns and after that the eternal state is established. Well, verse 6, he goes on to say, in this you greatly rejoice. Now he's going to address their trials. He's going to address their fear. He's going to address the fear that they have that they might be executed for their faith. And you know what Peter says? He says, you rejoice. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials so that the proof of your faith, and we studied faith last week, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable. So gold is perishable. Even though tested by fire, this faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that revelation of Jesus Christ, when we talk about the revelation of Jesus Christ, we're talking about that future coming, that second coming. And verse 8, and though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with a joy inexpressible and full of glory. This hope of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ should cause us to rejoice. It should cause us to rejoice each and every single day, no matter what trials you go through. And I know that's hard because some of us are going through trials and sometimes those trials don't go away easily. Some of you have physical trials that are never going to go away. Not until your life here in this world ends. Sometimes it's day after day of the spiritual war. Sometimes it's grieving over family members who don't know the Lord. Grieving over economic crises, whatever the case may be. But here... Peter says that you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. And then verse 9, obtaining as the outcome of your faith. So the faith that you have now, the outcome of it is the salvation of your souls. Once again, that's not to say that what you do now is what dictates your outcome. But what I'm saying is that at the end of what you do now, the outcome of that is salvation. And then verse 10, as to this salvation, and by the way, this is where Peter talks about the Old Testament prophets. You know, in the Old Testament, you see all kinds of prophecies of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see all kinds of prophecies of the coming Messiah. And Peter actually addresses them. He said, as to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries. So they examined their own writings. They were examining their own writings. In verse 11, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. So they looked at their own writings, and they knew that there was a Christ coming. They knew that there would be sufferings of this Christ, and they knew that there would be glory that follows it. But they didn't know who the person exactly would be. 
or when the time was. That's what's happening here. They're searching through all their writings. They're trying to know when Christ is going to come. But Peter says this, verse 12, It was revealed to them, those Old Testament prophets, that they were not serving themselves, but they were serving you, serving us. In other words, those prophecies were written for our benefit to know that Jesus Christ has fulfilled them. The Old Testament prophecies are for our benefit to recognize that the man whom we call Jesus Christ was the man who had been prophesied from the very beginning. Here is the conclusion to that. Paul says, therefore, so knowing all this, knowing that we are looking forward to Christ returning, knowing that we're looking forward to our bodies being glorified, knowing that the Old Testament prophets searched and searched and then realized that all these prophecies was to serve us. Knowing all that, verse 13, therefore, this is what you are to do. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Once again, the mind. Prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. And look at that. Fix your hope completely. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You are to fix your hope, not just a little bit. You're not just to simply anticipate it. But he is saying, fix your hope completely on the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Fix your hope on that time when Jesus Christ will return. Because that is going to be the real prize. That is going to be greater than all the earthly material prizes put together. And I've said it before, in this world, you could have everything in this world, but if you don't have Christ, you've got nothing. And on the other hand, you can have nothing in this world, but if you have Christ, you've got everything. Because I would have rather have Christ for all eternity than to have what the world offers for the time span of a vapor. Christ is not only much longer in terms of being in eternity, it's, a, it's no limit of time, but He is much greater. He is much more valuable. And so use the helmet of salvation. You see, in the spiritual war, we have to understand that Satan wants you to doubt your salvation. And this happens often. A lot of good and godly believers that sometime in their life, usually earlier on when they had just been saved, go through some difficult trials and they start to question whether they are really saved. And then when you question your own salvation, you start to be, you're, you're tempted into believing a salvation by works rather than a salvation by faith. You're tempted to believe that you must do more in order to be saved. You must be better in order to be saved. But that's not the message of salvation. And that traces back to the breastplate of righteousness. It's not your righteousness that saves you. It's the righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ. You could be tempted to legalism as well, making your walk all about checklists rather than loving the Lord our God. Satan wants you to be weary in the battle. And I know this describes so many of us, frustration, despair, depression. We feel like we're going through the same struggles each and every day. And every day we must put on the helmet of salvation and remind ourselves that there is light at the end of the tunnel. We just need to stick with it each and every day to trust in God, to put our faith in God, and to look forward to our hope of salvation. Sometimes Satan, by making you worry, wants you to disconnect from the church. And this happens a lot. 
We have a lot of people that have been here at the church in the past who are not here and have not been here for a long time and have not attended church in a long time. People disconnect from the church for various reasons. But Satan wants that. He wants to weary you, but the more wearied we get, the more frustrated, despairing, and depressed we get, the more likely we are to disconnect from the church. Satan wants you to give up the battle. We're in a spiritual war, a spiritual battle each and every day, and Satan just wants you to give up. He wants you to throw in the towel. He wants you to wave the white flag. He wants you to say that I can't do this anymore. But you can. God provides you with the power to endure. But you need to put on the helmet of salvation and let that hope carry you. Because people who give up, it's because of a loss of hope. They give in to futility, this idea that it's no use. Sometimes you're struggling with your own growth. You're struggling with your own Bible reading plans. You're struggling with prayer. But you need to stick through it each and every day. Go before the Lord. Trust in His power. And Satan wants you to put your hope in the world. He wants you to put your hope in the world, which means to forget that your citizenship is in heaven, but worry completely about everything that is going on here. And by doing so, you will create worldly idols. You will desire what is temporal over what is eternal. Beloved, there are so many ways that the helmet of salvation helps us. But mostly when you think about the helmet of salvation, I want you to think of the hope that is all over the Bible. And trust me, I just read a smidgen of it. We want to be able to hope in what is coming in the future. And we want that hope to help us endure and to sustain through whatever trials are in the present whatever spiritual battles that Satan is putting you through. And if you're here for the first time this morning, or if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, let this be the day of salvation. If you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, you are in a tunnel, and that light at the end of the tunnel is not daylight. It is an oncoming train of judgment. But if you put your faith into the Lord Jesus Christ, if you trust that his death on the cross, that the death that he paid when he went to the cross, that death was meant to pay for the sins, past, present, and future, for all those who would put their faith into him. If you recognize your need for salvation, then the call for you this morning is to repent and to believe in him. You repent, meaning that you turn away from your prior manner of life, and now you follow after Christ. You put your belief in Him that only through Him and Him alone can you be saved. I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. That's what Jesus said in John 14, 6. There is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. Acts 4, 12. And so you put your trust into the Lord Jesus Christ, that Him and Him alone, and that's it. You repent, you turn away from your old manner of life, you believe in Christ, and the guarantee from scriptures is that it's no works that you bring to the table. It's not your own goodness because you have none. It's not your righteousness because you have none. But you put your faith into Christ, and the promise is salvation, eternal life. And then you too will be able to put on the helmet of salvation. Let us pray.